righty. Good morning, Icon. All righty. Well, if you will remain standing for the reading of God's Word, our scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me fix this real quick. I don't have to tell you this, but I'm going to anyway. Um, Seattle can be a, a difficult place to live, right? Um, whether it's from the weather or the culture or the people, um, it can be a difficult place and it, it pushes a, a lot of people out. Uh, but for me, I, I love this city. Um, I, I love the weather. I was actually uh, having a drink with a friend on Friday night and he was asking me just kind of what my experience has been in Seattle thus far. And I just told him, you know, people told me that my second winter here would be the hardest one. And if I got past that, then I would be okay. Anybody heard that? Anybody else? No? Okay. Let's wake up today, okay, guys? <laughs> Great. Someone did. Um, and uh, I just told him, I, I still love it. You know, I, if I wake up and I see a gray day, it's, it's not like, it's, it doesn't crush my soul, you know? There, it's still a little endearing to me. And same with the people, too. Like, as crazy and as jaded as the people in Seattle can be, it's, it's strangely endearing to me. But there is one thing about Seattle that I would be... I, 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 <laughs> I hate it so much to say that I hate it. It makes me so angry, and it's the one thing in Seattle that I cannot stand. Driving in Seattle. I'm gonna get worked up, guys. It's the worst. I, I hate driving in Seattle. You see, I, I grew up in the Dallas area, which means I was, I was taught how to drive as a Texan. And that's a different thing. When you, when you learn how to drive as a Texan, you grow up, you get formed into you this very important principle as a driver, which is this. You hesitate, you die. <laughs> that's like a, that's a, that's a, not to use a pun, but that's a driving principle for me when I'm behind the wheel. I'm a gentle pastor, but I'm a very aggressive driver. I just, if you're driving this two-ton piece of metal, 60 miles an hour, you hesitate, you second guess, and that's when you get in trouble. And it doesn't seem like much of Seattle shares that same principle. Am I right? It's, it's rare. And, and I get extremely angry. And, and, and when I get angry, uh, you know, I, I always want to, you know, if someone in front of you takes like, you know, a mile to get over into their lane, they have their blinker on forever, whatever it is, you could give a plethora of examples. You always want to give them the look, right? Am I the only one? You know what I'm talking about? Well, you drive up, my, my wife Courtney hates this about me, and you just get beside him, you just kind of like, are you okay over there, man? Like, you just give them the, you just like, 
Is that you drive up and you expect to see like a, a, a dog driving the car, but it's a 35-year-old trying their best, you know? And anyways, I, 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 I want to give people the look, but there's one thing that I always think about before I give people the look, which is a, a study that I read uh, about that they, that they did in 2008. And the way that this, uh, what this study did is it, it looked at who is most likely to practice road rage. Um, because that's important for me if, you know, I, I don't practice road rage, I'm not that bad, but I, I just want to shame people with my eyes. And so if I'm driving up and I want to give that look, I always think about this study because I don't want to, giving the look can provoke and you don't want to provoke the wrong person. And what this study found is that the number one data point for who is most likely to practice road rage has nothing to do with what car they drive. Like you, you, would, you would think that you might be more intimidated, more hesitant to give that look to like a blacked out Dodge Ram, right? But if it's a smart car, you, you know, you're, you're not as worried. But that study found that it, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It doesn't have anything to do with the person. It doesn't have, you, you might think that, that older males, you know, the, the grumpy ones might be more pra, uh, prone to practicing road rage. None of that matters. The number one data point that they found that correlates with whether someone's going to practice road rage or not is how many bumper stickers they have. Isn't that crazy? That's the number one correlation between who is most likely to practice road rage. And if you think about it, it, it begins to make sense. If you're a person with, with 20 bumper stickers on your car, what kind of person are you? You are a person who likes, your opinion, you're, you're a person who has opinions and wants other people to know about it. It's different than having opinions and then wanting other people to know about it, right? And so in many ways, that, that same idea of, of self-assertion and, and wanting other people to know how you feel and what you think translates pretty easily over into road rage. It's easy to, to force your will upon others, to assert yourself. Asserting ourselves. We, we all do that, right? We all assert ourselves in different environments. We have ideas and we want you to know about them. We have opinions and I want you to have the same ones. I, 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 me, me, me. Is that not a fundamental source of why we experience such anger? Of why we all experience such anger? I mean, all of us, I don't, care, I don't care how relaxed you think you are or how much of a, a chill vibe you put off. Anger is in you. Anger is in you. Why is that? Why, why is anger in each one of us? Because we all have this default orientation of the self. We're stuck on the self. We are oriented to the world through ourselves. And because of that orientation, our anger comes out in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of worlds. Whether it's revealed anger or concealed anger, it's there. Whether you're the, the hothead who blows up or you default to the, the icy blue cold withdrawal, we all have anger in us. It's all sourced in anger. It's just a different look. And all kinds of worlds, too. The, the, the world of relationships, the world of finances, the world of career, anger is there. I mean, the world of parenting, anger is there. 
I did not think I was an angry person. I thought I was a chill person until I had kids. Every parent struggles with anger. In fact, the reality of parental anger actually leads so, is one of the reasons why there's all kinds of different philosophies now um, that actually lead us, that, that help us to remove the risk of our own anger in parenting. So when you talk about uh, you know, conversations around discipline and philosophies around that, uh, I'm not saying anything. To each his own, I've not figured out how to be a parent. Um, but a, a lot of these philosophies, what they are, in a sense, is you removing the risk of your own anger in parenting. You know how angry you can get. You don't trust yourself for understandable reasons to be able to take your anger out of parenting. You don't, you don't trust yourself to hand out wise, calm, just discipline, which makes sense. We remove the risk. So in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of worlds, we are all so angry. We all feel it. And so what are we going to do about this? Surely you, surely you don't want to be that person, right? That, that person. I'm sure you can think of someone right now who has expressed their anger against you, and you don't want your name to come up in that conversation. You, you don't want to be known as the angry person. None of us want to be that. No one wants their name connected to that. So how can, we, how can we fix it? What are we going to do about it? Can the angry person, which is you, really change? The resounding answer of Christianity is, is yes. With, with something even so deep as the passions of anger, you can change. You are not stuck. At least you don't, you don't have to be. But if you're going to get unstuck from anger, this is a, this is a warning, is going to take some foundational change. If you're going to get unstuck and no longer be the person who's known for their anger or known for their silent withdrawal, it's going to take some foundational change. Coping mechanisms, self-care, and even mindfulness, those are reactive solutions. They don't change what's actually going on inside of you. And so Jesus, today, in this section, is going to invite you into some, some deeper change. I hope you want that. So let's get, our, let's get our bearings for a second in this section of the sermon. So, so this piece on anger begins a, a section in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that's gonna, like I said, begin to deal with very practical, very real-life areas. And remember, this, this whole series is entitled Jesus the Great Philosopher, right? That's the title of the series. And despite what you might have learned in Philosophy 101, philosophy is not trying to get you to obsess about whether the chair you're sitting in is real or not. That's, like not, the, that's not the purpose of philosophy. The, the, the purpose of philosophy, at least in ancient philosophy, is to, to begin to teach us, inform us what a life lived well looks like. That's why the whole tagline is the Sermon on the Mount and human flourishing. It's all about how do we live well? How do we live in such a way? What do we invest our minds and our practices and our affections toward in order to have a life that, that flourishes with wholeness and, and purpose and even happiness? And this, this section of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount deals with, with just that. How do we live well? He's going to take what he already said in verses 17 through 20 and begin to kind of work that out into some very practical applications. 
that his work of fulfillment and his call to, to heart devotion is about to get made really, really practical. And that practicality today revolves around anger. So let's, let's jump in. First, let's, let's start off with a definition. What is anger? Uh, in his book, Uprooting Anger, uh, by Robert D. Jones, he, he says this, and we're gonna, we're gonna read this and kinda pass on by it, but we'll come back to it later. Anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. I'm gonna say that again just in case you're taking notes because we'll come back to it later in the sermon. Anger is our whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. So we'll come back to that, especially that, that last part, perceived evil. So this, this whole person, active response, what, is, what does Jesus have to say about this? Look, look at the text with me in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. To go anger man, that escalated quickly, right? Talking about insulting someone and going to hell for it. What is Jesus talking about here? Jesus, Jesus starts by jumping from the, the Old Testament command to, to not murder, which we can all pretty much understand. You, you murder someone, you will be liable to judgment. That's very understandable. But, but he takes it deeper. Again, he, he's going to be going to the heart, just like we talked about last week. He takes it deeper in toward the heart of what we feel toward one another. What we feel in our hearts. You see, you can see how he, he connects the act of murder and the heart of anger with the same consequence, right? That, that both of these are and will be liable to judgment. But let's just be honest for a second. We can be honest as we're reading the Bible. What Jesus is saying here is not immediately obvious. It, it's not immediately obvious that the act of murder and the heart of anger would be liable to the same consequence. That, that's not clear in our heads. Laying murder beside the heart of anger as resulting in the same consequence doesn't make sense. We have an intuitive revulsion against murder. Hopefully we all do, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah? Okay. I'm seeing who doesn't say amen right now, so I can be nervous about you. We all have an inward, intuitive revulsion to murder, but that intuitive response is not so strong when we just think about being angry. It doesn't feel as consequential or as, as serious. So, so why does Jesus put what seems extreme next to what seems mild right beside one another? Well, to get some clarity, let's think about murder, okay? Happy Sunday. Let's think about murder together. Specifically, why, why does God condemn the act of murder? I think, again, we all have a revulsion to it, but why does God actually condemn it? Listen to this from Genesis 9. Talking to, God is talking to Noah in this context, and he says, For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
for God made man in his own image. Now that last line is key. Talk about this all the time, but man and woman are made in the image of God. That's who we are. We have untouchable dignity and worth because we are associated with who God is and what he's like, right? And a violation of that dignity, like murder, is liable to judgment as seen in Genesis 9. It it, it comes with consequences. But the violation of that dignity that we have as image bearers does not just come when you physically harm someone. That's not the only violation of the image of God, as Jesus shows. With our words, more than that, with what we feel toward one another in our hearts can be a violation of dignity in the same way that murder is. Jesus connects the act of murder in the heart of anger as having the the same eventual consequence, right? Judgment, which should tell us that they have the same core offense. They're they're wrong both for, for the same reason. Murder and the heart of anger, the words that cut down, the silence into which you retreat is a violation of the other person's dignity. In Genesis 9, murder is seen as a a heinous violation of the image of God in others. And in Matthew 5, as Jesus says, the heart of anger or the mouth that insults is seen just as heinously just as deeply, we should have, again, we understand why murder is so repulsive to us, but we should have the same revulsion in our hearts toward anger, toward our insults toward one another. You You can't pick and choose at what level you want to devalue a human being. You can't pick and choose that. Devaluing a human being at any level is heinous. And in our anger, in our insults, we're doing something very sinister. We're treating as common what God has called sacred. In our anger, we're treating someone who God has called sacred. Regardless of what they've done, I know there's context, there's all this nuance. God has called that person sacred. And in your anger... Regardless of why the anger is there, which we'll get into, you are treating them as common, as nothing to give any reverence toward, just another thing to cut down, just another person to get out of your way so that you can get what you actually want. In our anger, that's what we're doing. We're treating another person as as common, someone that we can flippantly push down with words when we don't get our way. Anger sinfully robs another person of the dignity they own. With the things we say, with the words we speak, or with the silent treatment we give, we tear down dignity. With the outbursts uh, that we explode into, or the retreats that we withdraw into, what we are saying is that whatever we want in that moment is more important than the value of this image bearer of God. 
We become perfectly okay because we're so worked up with what we didn't get. We become okay with just cutting down another human being. God says no. God says no. The value of that person, and we'll get into this, is more important than what you want. Your desires in that moment do not get to determine the value of that other person. But in anger, that's what it tries to do. That you love this thing, you want this thing so much that that person might as well be seen as common, and so you treat them as thus. We take away and we rob dignity in our anger. And I think we all know this. We all, we, we all experience this. We know whether we've received someone's anger or we've been the perpetrator of anger, just how much it can rob a value in another person. Like I shared earlier in the sermon, I, I never knew how, how much anger was in my heart until, it became, until I became a parent. Until there was a, a little three-year-old standing in the way of what I want as a 31-year-old, I didn't know how angry I could get. And it, got, it, it was reiterated to me in, in some, some painful ways just a few months ago. Back in October, I, I took my daughter, Margot, who, who's four now, to, to a movie. Um, she was kind of having like a, a rough week, you know, with obedient stuff. And I found that a lot of times when she's super rebellious, what she needs is just like some daddy-daughter time. So I, I, I took her to go see a movie, and I was so excited about it. The movie was great. I don't remember what it was, but it was good. And, uh, and we had a great time. It, it was so much fun. Like she, we shared Sour Patch Kids, you know, and had popcorn and just set myself up for another nightmare later when it was bedtime, you know, how that works. And, and we, the, the movie ends, and we're starting to walk out, and Margot just does not want to leave. Um, but for me, I'm like, I'm, there's nothing more to do here. Like, we're not, we're not going to watch another movie. I want to go. I'm starting to get hungry. It's, it's dinner time. And I, and I told Margo, hey, I'm going to, on the way home, we're going to stop by Chick-fil-A, her favorite, nuggets and fries, and trying to tell her it's going to be okay. Like, it's actually better if we leave because we can go get Chick-fil-A. But the whole time, she's just like screaming and, you know, just doesn't want to leave. She had a, had a great time. And for me, I start valuing the opinion of other people about my parenting more than I do my own daughter. So I get embarrassed, right? And so I just, I pick her up and I'm like, you know, just like carrying her as much as I can. Hopefully people don't think I'm stealing her with how much she's screaming, you know? And, and I get her in the car and things just continue to devolve. And it, it, it didn't stop for like 30 straight minutes. Even when we're in the drive-thru, I'm talking to this little 15-year-old kid just like, just nuggets and fries, man. Just nuggets and fries. Like, please, just give me my nuggets and fries. And Margo's screaming in the back. And so I get more embarrassed. And, and eventually, the, the situation just explodes where I'm angry. Margo, I, I wanted a good day. I wanted a good daddy-daughter day. I just wanted to have fun. But you're ruining it. Eat your nuggets. Okay, she spills them on the ground. Okay, fine. If you're not going to eat your nuggets, I'm going to. So you know how parents do. We get so petty. We're like, if you're not going to eat it, I will. And then when I pop that nugget in my mouth, she lost it. <laughs> and I remember, I remember that, as funny as that story is, I remember that night after she had already gone to sleep, going into her room and just being like, I'm, you know, she's already asleep and I'm just, just kind of looking at her and giving her a hug and I'm thinking, I'm an idiot. 
Like this, this little human being is so much more valuable to me than the expectation I had around a, a fun daddy-daughter date, but I didn't treat her as that. I didn't treat her. My actions, or at least my words toward her, did not match up with the love I actually have for her. Did not match up even with the dignity and the value that God places on her. Anger tears down dignity. It tears down the worth of another person. And God says, no. You don't get to pick and choose at what level you want to devalue a human being. It's the same consequence as murder. Anger is a serious violation of dignity. And it's so serious that Jesus goes to where he goes next. Look, look at the text with me. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until, the, until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus begins to give two examples that, that are meant to illustrate the urgency with which we should treat our anger. And the, and the first example of urgency is in your relationship with God. Friend, did you know that God refuses your devotion when your relationships are divided because of anger? God doesn't... God doesn't want your worship if there is another person that holds something against you because they were the victim of your anger. That's a shocking statement. <laughs> Throughout the entire Bible, God is doing things and saying things in order to, the, to win the worship of his people. And yet Jesus here says, if you have anger in your heart, if you can name someone right now who was the victim of your anger and you've not resolved that, don't bother. Don't, don't bother with God. We, we can't compartmentalize. And we, we do that so often. We compartmentalize or, or, or we play it down. We think that we can come in here on a Sunday and worship or, or drive in our car to some worship playlist or have some Instagrammable devotion time, right? All the while, there's people who probably have something against us, a brother or a sister that we've not reconciled with, with yet, someone we've not yet said we're sorry to. And God says, I don't want your gift. I don't want your worship. I don't want your life compartmentalized. I want your whole life under devotion to me, and so therefore, you don't get to come and worship me when you have problems with all these other people. God won't have it. We, we, we can't compartmentalize our life. God treats our whole life as this, this organism when we come to him. It's a, it's a whole unit. And when there's diseased parts of that organism, God says, you need to take care of that. You can't overlook that. God doesn't want your sacrifice. God doesn't want your devotion. God doesn't even, it's kind of strange to say, care about your obedience when there's someone who you've not reconciled with. God won't have it. 
God doesn't receive our worship as true, as sincere, when all the while we are pushing out of view image bearers whom he values and loves. God won't have it. Anger has consequences, one of which is handicapping your intimacy with God. But anger also has consequences in your horizontal relationships, right? Which is an obvious statement, but it's, it's a reality that, that Jesus points to in order to make you feel the, the urgency of dealing with your anger. And he, he gives the illustration of a, a, a court case, which unless it is dealt with will result in you paying a price. And, and, I, and I don't think, this is one way that this has been interpreted, I don't think Jesus is trying to, to give an illustration of what he talked about with the hell of fire here. It's, it's more in the context, it seems, as if he's just simply be showing, like, this is an urgent thing in your relationships with other people that you need to take care of, because not only will it affect your relationship with God, it will affect your relationships with others, and you will pay the price for that. You, you will pay the price in real-life relationships if you don't do the work or the intention of repentance and restoration. Undealt anger with others results in your own isolation. If you are the type of person who will not resolve, will not restore from what you have damaged through anger, you begin to slowly get let out by yourself. No one wants to be around you. Anger has real consequences in relationships. You'll be a, you will, there is a price for your rage. There is a price to be paid for the words that jab. People just don't like you. <laughs> People don't want to be around you. And until you begin to practice repentance and restoration, Jesus is saying, you're going to continue to pay that price. I mean, I, I, I can give you names right now. Names of people who I know, who, who I honestly have no idea where they are, actually, because their unresolved anger and the unmended wounds of that anger have pushed them out of people's lives. People get tired of it. Can I get an amen? People get sick of that person who will, who will not own their mess, who won't own what they said, who won't address how, even what their tone is with other people, how much they undercut people. You get, you get tired of it. You cannot endure the rage or the jabs forever. Eventually, the victim of your anger will be finished and you'll be left alone. You will pay the price. You will pay the price for your own anger through the loss of relationship, which so often in your own, own anger, you'll, you probably say is everyone else's fault. <laughs> it's not. You've just got to repent. And then, to put it bluntly, you've just got to repent and then maybe people will begin to put up with you again. Your anger will pay a price. So anger, as Jesus shows here, is serious. The, the, the heart of anger, the, the words that we say toward one another come with real consequences. And so we should, as, as 17 through 20 led us last week, we should think about how we should repent from the heart, which bears us to ask this question in closing. What causes your anger? At the end of this, we're going to have some real time to really think and, and meditate silently
But think now, what causes your anger? What, what do you need to address in yourself in order to slowly see transformation in this area? What do you, let's put it this way, let's just go to this. James, in James 4, the apostle James says this. Kind of ask the same question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So the reason you fight, the reason you swell with anger is because you want. <laughs> there, there's something you want and either you didn't get it and so you're angry or you think being angry is actually what will get it for you. To go back to the, the bumper sticker illustration from the beginning, right? You want to assert yourself, your will. Me, 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 I, 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 I want, I want. That's what drives our anger. And in fact, like I've been saying this whole time, your passion for that thing becomes more valuable to you than the image of God in others. The value that God places on other human beings in your mind and in your practice is lower than the value that you place on your desires. You want far more than you care. You want far more than you care. Anger is this expression of a, an animalistic desire, choosing to go after what you want despite how much it costs the other person. It gets, it gets violent in our hearts. <laughs> To go back to that definition that we saw, the anger is the whole person response of a negative moral judgment against perceived evil. What, that last word is key, perceived evil. In our anger, we want something so badly that we are willing to call anything getting in the way of that evil. With our actions, we say that. We might not name it. We might not say that with our minds. But with our actions, coming against that person in anger is simply us saying, what I want is more important. And anything that stands in the way of that is evil. It's infantile. <laughs> it's infantile. That, that's what babies do, right? It's, it's the smallest ones among us that are the most violent with their desires, right? That's what babies do. Like the... The old church father, Augustine, he has this, this book called Confessions, and there's a, there's a section in there where he begins to, he, he confesses like everything in his life ever, and there's a section where he goes back to, in his mind, back to when he was a baby and begins confessing sins there. It's a brilliant book, and he, he, he talks about how at first, in his anger as a baby, he was simply trying to, to, to get what he wanted, he just, or get what he needed. He had desires for milk. And so he would cry whenever he needed to eat. But he talks about how eventually, just like every other kid, it's no longer about what the kid needs, but it's about what the kid wants. And that's when, if you have kids again, you begin to see in the child this willingness to assert on others their own will. And it's a strong will. <laughs> There's actually this quote right here. This is, I love this line from that section of the book. He says, the weakness then of an infant's limbs, not its will, is its innocence. <laughs> the reason you think babies are so innocent is not because they're tranquil bundles of joy, 
but only because they don't have the strength in their limbs yet to impose their will on you. That's why we see babies as innocent. It's not because they are innocent in their heart. They want some things and they want to conform you to, your, to their will. They just don't have the strength to do that. And yet, we all grow up and gain that strength, don't we? We grow up and, and get stronger arms to, to bend people to our will. We get a wider vocabulary with which to lob grenades and cutting jabs. We don't grow out of our passions and wants. That thing that drives our anger. And so friends, it's at this level of, of passions and desires that God calls you to repentance today. What is it that you want? What is, that it, what is it that is more valuable to you than the image of God in others? What's the passion that you have that you want so much you're willing to run over other people with your words or physically? Maybe it's respect. That's the thing too. It's so many of these desires aren't inordinately sinful. <laughs> They're not inherently sinful. They're just desires for good things that are way too large that become bigger than the value of other people. Maybe you want respect and when you don't get it, you blow up. What is it that you want? What is it that will lead you to, to run over another person? What do you want so badly that you're willing to sin to get it? This is the level of change that Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And this level of change in repentance has to go deep, and, it, and I think it happens in, in two main ways. The way that we begin to repent from our passions is first by, by seeing that the grace of God has come in Jesus Christ so that you can have that passion changed. I said this at the beginning. You are not stuck. Whatever it is that is driving you, whatever it is that you want that feels so important to you, Jesus Christ came to die for you so that you could slowly over time first be forgiven of that immediately when you place faith in Christ, but also so that he could give you his Holy Spirit so that you can begin to walk away from that. That's the first step. To realize the power of the gospel and the promise of the gospel that you can change. And then second, to begin to examine to begin to think through what are the passions that need to change? What are the things that I need to get over? And I, need to, I, I want us to, to do that today. I trust that you'll do this throughout the week, hopefully, but right now, I gotcha. So let's do this now. Let's, let's respond and consider together what it is that God is calling us to let go of and to repent of. And so if you will, if you'll just get in a posture to, to think and to reflect. If you want to close your eyes, if you want to write in your journal, you're welcome to do that. But we're gonna, I'm going to ask some questions, and I just want you to begin to, to think through and, and see what the Spirit of God brings up in your mind. And I'll give you time to think after each one. First, what I've asked you so 
many times now. What do you want most? What's your greatest goal in life? What do you want most in relationships? Why is it so important to you? Why do you want it so badly? Do you want it so badly that you're willing to inflict verbal, emotional, or physical harm onto an image bearer of God? In what ways have you already inflicted that harm? Think of the names. Think of the examples. Now in that desire, in that passion, what would it look like for you to involve God in that desire? Remember, you have a a generous God who desires good things for his people. What would it look like to take what you want, to take what you want to have to the, the giver of all good gifts? How could God give you a better version of this than what your anger can create for yourself? Now look at me, friend. Whatever it is that you want, whatever that passion is, the core of that, whatever that passion is, God is able to answer that in a far better way than your anger can produce. And if you'll give that over to him, he can begin to meet that core need. Maybe what you want most is respect. Friend, you have the righteousness of Christ. God looks at you and sees you as perfectly righteous in him. You have the, you don't need respect from other people. You can lay that aside. Whatever it is, whatever the core of that desire is, would you begin to take that to God instead of outsourcing it in sinful ways? You can take that to him because he, this is the thing, it's laying down these passions is not about asceticism. It's not about you becoming passionless. It's about driving and pushing your passions in the right direction. And we can do that because of the grace of Jesus Christ. We can come to God with mixed motives and sinful passions 
and still be invited into grace and invited into transformation. So whatever it was for you in your mind, whatever the spirit of God brought to your heart, don't let that push you away in shame, but have a greater expectation of grace to, to, to calm you and to begin to change you. Let's pray toward that end. Father, I thank you that, that you give us such, such grace as we are still in process. God, would you have mercy on us today for the ways that we've sinned against you and against others in our anger? Would you help us to feel the weight of conviction in that? to not brush it away, to not compartmentalize our life, but see it as something that needs to be dealt with. Maybe a relationship that needs to be restored. An apology, sincerely, that needs to be offered. Or amends that need to be made. God, give us the grace to reconcile. Your heart for us is so much more than what we what we want. You, you want more than compartmentalized Christian lives. You want the whole heart. So God, we respond to that call. We respond to that desire of yours to have our whole heart and ask that you would transform our passions and our wants to be holy, which means putting them in the right place. Help us to offer those to you in grace and in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all, and we are his.